Uh, last year, I had the privilege of preaching here at Redeemer, and I came to you as a partner in the gospel. But this time, I come to you as a friend and as a fellow member at Redeemer. So it's an extra privilege to be able to share God's word with you and serve you this morning in the best way that I know how. And so I'm, I'm excited about this this morning. We're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 3. And in a minute, we're going to read the whole chapter. But the, the title of my message is Reaching Maturity Together. Reaching Maturity Together. Many of you don't know this about me, but in my younger years, I was a member of the Garland Fire Department. I was a firefighter and a paramedic. And one of my friends that rode on the box or the ambulance with me was one time telling me a story about a friend of his who had a little boy. And when this little boy was born, he got a blanket, a blankie, and he carried that blanket with him everywhere he went. No matter what, he couldn't forget that blanket. It was his security. Well, the problem was is that over the years, he didn't separate from that blanket. And being drug everywhere, eventually it became soiled where you couldn't wash out the stains. It kind of had a little bit of a stink to it that his parents couldn't get out no matter how many times they washed it. And it became very ragged. So his parents were thinking, how in the world can we get this child to part with this blanket? So they came up with an ingenious idea. Every time they washed his blanket, they took a pair of scissors and they cut a portion of the blanket off. And over time, that blanket went from a full-size blanket to a little piece of cloth. And this friend of mine said that the little boy would be playing and he'd reach into his pocket occasionally and he'd pull out that blanket and he'd unfold it and he'd put it right here and he would just rub his face with it. It's an endearing story, isn't it? But what if today I called that young man up, probably 35 or 40 years old, and said, hey, let's go out to lunch together. And we go out to lunch, and during the course of our conversation, he reaches into his pocket, and he pulls out this little blanket, and he unfolds it, and he puts it up on his cheek, and he rubs it. Instead of it being an endearing and funny story, it's kind of scary, isn't it? It's concerning. Something's wrong that a grown man still is unfolding that old nasty blanket and holding on to it and seeing his security in it. What about you as a believer in Jesus Christ? You know, that need for that kind of security that the world offers, when you're a new Christian, it's understood. There's immaturity there. It's endearing to see somebody begin to walk with Christ and begin to let go of those things that they once held dear. But if you've been a believer for a while, it's not so endearing. There's an expectation there. And this is what we see in Paul's writings. There's a theme. Paul has expectations for the church at Philippi. Number one, he expects that God would complete his work in their lives. Steve spoke about that in the first week of our series. Paul also thought that they would hold firmly to the gospel. That was an expectation that they would hold firmly and fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. He also expected that they would live in a manner worthy of the gospel and the calling that they'd received. But he also expected that they would reach maturity, full maturity, in Jesus Christ. 
in some of his other writings, the church at Colossae, he wrote, he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. That's Colossians 1.28. He goes on in that same scripture to say, Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, is always wrestling in prayer for you. Why? That you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. Colossians 4.12. To the church at Ephesus, Paul writes, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers. Why? To equip God's people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Christian maturity is a theme that Paul carried throughout his gospel witness in all the nations, wherever he started a church, he urged them to be mature. And matter of fact, in the church at Corinth, Paul chided them for not being mature. He said at one point, I would like to be teaching you strong meat. You should be ready for it. But guess what? I can't. I have to still give you milk because you're still infants in Christ. So what used to be endearing and encouraging to see as they were young believers now as unbecoming to a follower of Jesus Christ. There is a maturation that has to happen in the life of every believer. It should be the expectation of Shannon, our pastor, that everyone at Redeemer become mature in Christ. If you're a life group leader, it should be your expectation that everyone that's under your shepherding should become mature in Christ. If you work in the children's ministry or with the students, it should be your expectation that everyone under your ministry become mature in Christ. And so that's what we're talking about today. And there's three main themes that I, that I find in this passage. And I will tell you, I, I feel spoiled today because Philippians 3 is one of my all-time favorite chapters in the Bible. And as many times as I've studied it and read and meditated on it, I will tell you, I'm the first to admit, I have not unlocked all the treasures that are in this passage. But what I have learned, I'm going to share with you today in hopes that it will encourage you and spur you on to maturity. So is it a deal? As I share, will you ask the Holy Spirit to speak to your heart, to reveal God's truth to you? This is an interaction between God, the Holy Spirit, as he speaks through the word, through your receptivity as a follower of Jesus Christ, and through me trying to serve you today. Can we work on this together? Okay. So there's three things that we see. First of all, identity from Christ, intimacy with Christ, and maturity in Christ. So let me read Philippians 3. I'm going to read the whole chapter to you. And, and you begin to look for those themes, okay? Starting in verse 1. Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. 
for it is we who are the circumcision. We who serve God by his spirit, who boast in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us then, and this is, I really want you to listen to these next few verses. It says, all of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we've already attained. Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, Keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I've often told you before and now tell you again with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control, will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. What a powerful passage of scripture. It, it, it really doesn't need much for us to explain it, for it to take hold in the heart of every believer. But I, as we look at this, and we see in verse 1 through 3 and in verse 9, we have an identity from Christ. Now, if you were to look up the word identity, you would see that it has a dual meaning. First of all, it means very simply who you are. Secondly, it means a close similarity or affinity with someone or something. So our identity from Christ, first of all, is who we are in Christ. But secondly, it's our affinity and passion for Christ and with each other. So, if we look at our identity in Christ, 
we have to see, first of all, that it's hard to get to maturity if we don't understand our identity in Christ. It's kind of a foundational concept. Um, our identity in Christ, as Paul told believers, is seen as what we were and now what we are. In so many of his passages to the church, Paul would say, you were, but now you are. Can you think of a few instances? You were dead in your transgressions and sins, but now you are alive in Christ Jesus. You were enemies of God, but now you are friends with Christ and join heirs with him. You were without God and without hope in the world, but now you have a living hope that this world cannot shake or take away. There's this sense of being the old person and now the new person. You live by the flesh once in your life, but now you live by the Spirit. So when you look at your identity in Christ, it is all found in him. It is from him. And there are certain things in this passage that Paul tells us are part of who we are. So let's look at a few of them. First of all, we are the circumcision. Now that's, that's kind of a funny thought to think about, isn't it? We are the circumcision. What is Paul talking about? Well, the first thing he do, does with this church in this passage, after he says, hey, rejoice in the Lord, he says, be on your guard. There are people that are coming into this congregation, and they often followed Paul to the different congregations, and they sowed discord because they would come in and go, we get that you believe in Jesus Christ, but what about physical circumcision? You're not a Christian unless you undergo physical circumcision. And so this was confusing to these Gentile believers who had come to faith in Christ and had experienced his mercy and his grace, and now they're being told that they've got to do something else or they're not doing something that they should be doing, and it's not coming from the Apostle Paul. So Paul is warning them about this, but he says, you are the circumcision. Where did circumcision come from? It came from Abraham. In Genesis 17, we see Abraham and God making covenant. And God told Abraham, this is an everlasting covenant between you and me. And the way we're going to signify that is you're going to be circumcised. Your sons will be circumcised. And all throughout the generations, you will be circumcised. It was a physical circumcision, an outward showing of a covenant that Abraham had made with God. But God also intended for it to refer to a spiritual circumcision. In Deuteronomy 36, the Bible says, The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the circumcision that God requires is not the outward show only on males. It is the circumcision of the heart for every man, woman, and child that calls on the name of Jesus Christ. There is something that happens to your heart when you in faith give your life to Jesus Christ. Your heart is different. It is transformed. You are a new creation. That covenant that God has made with you is the circumcision of the heart. And Paul says, we, those of us who know Christ, we are the true circumcision. The second part of that identity, he says, is we serve God by his spirit. We don't serve God by outward acts of the law. 
We don't serve God by rituals. We serve God by His Spirit. We don't serve God by the flesh. We serve God by His Spirit. And instead of our boasting being in our accomplishment, the third uh, identity that we receive from Christ is the ability to boast in Christ Jesus, not in our own selves. Paul said, if you want to play the boasting game, let me just tell you right now, I've got you beat. I can tick every box that you could ever think of to boast in the flesh, but guess what? That's not where your identity comes from. Your identity comes from Christ. You boast in Christ Jesus. And then he says the, the, the uh, fourth thing there, put no confidence in the flesh. How confident are you in your abilities, in your accomplishments? How much does that drive your identity and your sense of self-worth? And he says here, put no confidence in the flesh. And then the last thing is we possess a righteousness from God. Let's look at verse 9. And this is beautiful. In verse 9, he said that, And being found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ Jesus, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I grew up in a legalistic household, and we said that our righteousness was based on faith, but it sure seemed a lot that we were basing it on works. And it was almost easier to be a Christian because you could check off the boxes and say, well, I go to church every week, I, I go on visitation, I work in, you know, back then it was a bus ministry, and you could tick off all these things that you did and you felt better about yourself. But what Paul said is, no, the righteousness that I have comes from God on the basis of faith. It is through Jesus Christ. And here is the heart of the gospel. God offers us righteousness, imputed righteousness, something we did not deserve, something we could never earn on our own. He offers it freely in Christ Jesus. And that's where our identity comes from, the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Make no mistake, that's how you approach God is through the righteousness of Christ and the access that that gives us as believers. So we see that our identity is from Christ, and that is really foundational. The second point that I mentioned is intimacy with Christ. Intimacy with Christ. Let's read 3, 7 through 11 again. But whatever regains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attain to the resurrection from the dead. Can I ask you an honest question? How long has it been since you prayed and asked the Holy Spirit to help you plumb the depths of intimacy with Christ? That you've prayed and you said, God, I want to know you more and in deeper ways than I've ever known you before. How long has it been? Have you ever said that prayer? What are you willing to do to know Christ? What investments 
are you willing to make in that relationship? What things are you willing to lay aside and give up for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus, your Lord? The, the Greek word there is not just head knowledge. It is an experiential knowledge of Christ. Do you know Christ? If you're a believer, you know him, you have a relationship, but do you really know him? Do you know him to the extent that you would trade almost anything else to go deeper into intimacy with him? Paul says everything pales in comparison. There is a surpassing worth. You've, you've seen the commercials where people, you know, they're, they're, I can't even remember, I think it's a credit card commercial, but they, they list these different things and what they're worth, and then they say something, and they say, priceless. Is your desire to be intimate with Christ, is, is that priceless to you? There is a surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Friends, this is one of the biggest challenges. I've been a believer since I was nine years old. That's a lot of years. And I can tell you that is the biggest challenge and the deepest longing of my heart is to know Christ even better than I know him now. And it, it's, it's a continual process of sanctification. The more I know Christ, the more I love Christ. The more I love Christ, the more grateful I am, the, the, the more I want to express my love and intimacy with him through acts of service, through my allegiance, through the love I, I share with others. If you want to be mature in Christ, you not only need to have an identity from Christ, you must have an intimacy with Christ. It's hard to imagine achieving Christian maturity without understanding, understanding that identity that you receive from Christ and being intimate with him. The way I see it, if, if you really and truly want to be a follower of Christ, if I really and truly want to be a follower of Christ, then I have to draw close into intimacy with him. It's not an option. There's no other way to know him enough where I can emulate his life and be that person that he's called me to be. If you're in a marriage relationship and it's lukewarm, and you're just there because of the commitment, how different is that? then if you become a student of that person and you give your life into knowing that person better to loving them more and growing deeper and deeper in your unity. Friends, if you want to be mature in Christ, if you really want to be mature in Christ, being intimate with him has to be your chief priority. So is it? Is that where you stand today? And then the third thing, Maturity in Christ. In verses 7 and 8, which we just read, and then in 12 through 21, Paul talks about four things in regard to maturity in Christ. Number one, knowing what I should treasure. Knowing what I should treasure. What do you treasure? Christ said at one time, uh, where you what you treasure, that's where your heart's going to be. So what's your greatest treasure? The second thing is knowing where to focus my life. Is your life focused? Is your life focused on the right things? And then knowing how to live to please Christ. Can you honestly say, can I honestly say that I know how to live to please Christ? Well, I tell you one way that you do that, as Brian talked about last week, was saturating your life with the word of God. 
It's hard to grow into maturity in Christ if you don't know his word, if you don't have an experiential knowledge of his word. And then knowing who to follow in the journey. Verse 17, Paul said, follow my example. And look at the example of others who are mature in Christ and emulate their example. His idea was that at some point, God would make clear to you how you become mature. But you're going to have to look at other models of that. And do you as a believer in Christ, some of you may have been believers 20, 30 years, some maybe five years. Do you see yourself as an example of a mature believer? Does the thought of being an example scare you? Or does it ignite a passion in you? And part of that is understanding that it's not an option to become mature in Christ. So, those three things, my... um, my identity from Christ, my intimacy with Christ, and my maturity in Christ. How do we synthesize all of these things? How do we bring them together and know if we are walking in maturity? I'm going to give you a few indicators, and I will tell you right now, this is not exhaustive. These are things that I see in this passage of Scripture. And it's funny because I wanted to go into chapter 4, but I knew that Stanley's teaching on 4, so I I kept in my lane of chapter 3 this week. I'd like you to write these down if you, if you have a pen and paper handy because I think they'll help you know how you're doing on, on the journey here. Number one, a discerning mind. A discerning mind. Paul said in, in chapter 3, verse 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. There comes a point in a Christian's life where we know enough about the Word of God and we know enough about what it means to be a follower of Christ that we have a discerning mind. Paul said in Philippians 1, And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. God wants you to have a discerning mind that grows in knowledge and depth of insight. That's part of being mature in Christ, is being able to tell the difference in right and wrong, to be able to know when my heart is growing cold to Christ and when I need to lean further into Christ, to know when I am letting sin have its grip on me and I'm starting to think like the world. So there's this idea of discernment that is spirit-led discernment. So number one, a discerning mind. Number two, a surrendered life. Paul said in 7 and 8, whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. I don't know how many of you grew up in church, but years ago there was a hymn that we would always sing at the end of the service when we had an invitation. I surrender all. You remember that song? All to Jesus, I surrender. All to him, I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily live. And then the refrain is, I surrender all, I surrender all. Is that the story of your life? Is anything off limits to God? What are you holding tightly in your grasp right now that keeps you from moving into maturity in Christ? What what are you afraid to open your hand and let him take? 
And the, the basis of those fears is us finding our identity in something other than Jesus Christ. So, a surrendered life. Paul said in Philippians 1, 20 through 23, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that now, as always, Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Friends, I will tell you, one of the indicators that you are maturing Christ is where you have this tension that you have to manage. There's this idea that, man, I'd sure love for Christ to come back. I would sure love to be with him and see him make all things new and right the wrongs and, and, and be King Jesus and have all of the nations bow to him. I long for that day. But in the meantime, you know, I also long to be used of God and to be instrumental in people coming to know Christ. Paul said that. I don't know which to choose. So a surrendered life has to live in that space of longing to be with Christ but longing to make a difference for the kingdom of God. And that's an indication that you have a surrendered life. When you hold life loosely, and you're really torn about which is better. For some of us, that thought does not even compute. How do I even get to that point? I love living. Guess what? I love living too. But I can't wait to be with Christ. I don't know about you, whether he comes or whether he takes me. I can't wait to see my Savior face to face and to be known as I am known, and to be whole and sinless, and, and to be in his presence. But yet at the same time, he has work for me to do. So there's this idea of a surrendered life. And then a steadfast faith. We see this in verse 12 through 14 of Ephesians. Not or Philippians 3, I'm sorry. Not that I have already obtained all this, or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1, he says, whatever happens... Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, that you will be saved, and that by God. So what does it mean to have a steadfast faith? I will tell you what I don't think it means is when something bad happens to you, when life disappoints you, when a trial overcomes you and your family, when there's tragedy and heartache, I don't think what it means is this naive, oh, well, God will take care of it. It's going to be fine. I just have to trust God. I think that's great if somebody can have that attitude. But I will tell you, in most of our lives, we're human. And when something bad happens to us, the first places we go are usually those fight-or-flight mechanisms where where, you know, the anxiety kicks in, the fear kicks in, and we're wondering, what am I going to do? But, but here's what a steadfast faith looks like, and this is from experience. Because with me, sometimes when something bad happens, that fear wells up. I feel like I've got to fix something, and, and I'm wondering, what am I going to do? It's not that initial response of a, of a human being 
It's that reasoned response of faith that comes later. It's where you eventually land. When you've reasoned, number one, God is in control. Number two, God is faithful. Number three, God loves me. Number four, my life is his. Number five, whatever happens, Christ is with me. That's the thought process that begins to happen when the dust settles and, and you land in that trial. That shows whether your faith is steadfast or not. It's about his faithfulness. It's about the peace that only he can provide. So steadfast faith. And then number four, this is the fourth indicator that I've synthesized this identity from Christ, this intimacy with Christ, and this maturity in Christ is a humble attitude. And Brian talked about it last week. But in chapter 3, we see he talks about boasting in Christ rather than in our own accomplishments. He talks about serving God by a spirit rather than through our own prideful flesh. He talks about embracing our true identity in Christ, following the example of others who are further along in the journey, and then being comfortable with becoming a model that others will follow. I know for some of us, when we read that passage where Paul tells Timothy, follow me as I follow Christ, maybe the first thought that comes to our mind is, well, I'm glad Paul can say that, but if I said that, I would feel like I'm being prideful. It's not, it's not being prideful if it's, if it's true. And if your attitude is humble in that, literally being that kind of example is serving the body of Christ. That's one of the most humble things you can do is open up your life to people and say, look, I am on this spiritual journey of intimacy with Christ. Come along with me. Be my companion on the journey. I've, I've been doing this longer than you have. I'm willing to share whatever I've learned with you. I'll be honest about my failings and my weaknesses, but let's journey together. Follow my example as I follow Christ. That is the mentoring that is supposed to be built into the body of Christ so that those who are newer in Christ can look to role models, people who have lived their lives well and been faithful and trusted God so we can come along behind them and learn from them. And that ought to be as natural in the body of Christ as anything else, is that mentoring relationship. Follow me as I follow Christ. I will tell you, it takes a while to get there, but in the life of every believer, we need to, we need to be comfortable with that role that he has assigned to us. And then, lastly, a heavenly gaze. A heavenly gaze. So we've looked at a discerning mind, a surrendered life, a steadfast faith, a humble attitude, and finally, a heavenly gaze. Look at 18 through 21. For as I have often told you before and now tell you again, even with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Friends, are you forward 
thinking? Is your gaze on heaven? Have you forgotten what is behind, and are you focusing on what is ahead? Are you pressing on to that prize that calls us heavenward in Christ Jesus? Do you long for his appearing? Are you eagerly awaiting a Savior? Are your eyes on the prize? Jesus Christ, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Where's your gaze? Are you looking at the world? Are you looking at your past accomplishments? Are you looking forward to Christ, pressing on for that to which Christ took hold of you? And that's the heart of being mature in Christ. And when I think about this, I think about Christ. I mean, the things that I just told you are key indicators of maturity, a discerning mind, a surrendered life. Who surrendered more than our Lord Jesus Christ when he left heaven and in humility came with that humble attitude and offered himself up for our sins? A steadfast faith who for the joy set before him did not miss out on the joy that awaited him, and he scorned the shame of the cross because he knew that in what he did, he glorified God the Father, and he brought salvation to you and I. So let me ask you today, how are you on the path of intimacy and maturity in Christ? What do you base your identity on? Is it on your accomplishments? Is it on the possessions that you have? Or is it based on that identity that comes from Christ, that righteousness that comes from God and is by faith? I know there's been a lot of content today, but I I hope that you don't miss this. The most important thing that you and I can do to honor Christ is to embrace that identity, to lean into intimacy with him, and then seek to walk in maturity with him. Because as we do that, we bring others into the kingdom of God. We bring others along in their faith, and we fulfill the law of Christ. So my friends, will you join me in that journey of intimacy and identity and maturity in Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you for giving your life for us, for showing us the way to the Father, for accomplishing for us what we could never do in ourselves. You made us new creations, created in you for good works and for maturity. Lord, may we challenge ourselves to walk in such a way that we grow in maturity and we bring others along with us and fulfill Paul's expectations for the church, and ultimately God's expectations for the church. We can't do this by ourselves. It is a work of the Spirit of God. May we listen, may we yield, may we surrender to the Spirit of God, and may we walk in a manner worthy of the gospel. Amen.